blessing to be with a group of believers where uh, you dismiss for children's church and 50% of the audience leaves, at least. Uh, it's a joy. Many people would want that. So our children are a joy. Thank you so much, Jerry. Please turn your Bibles to Genesis 47. It is at this place in the story of Joseph that we often kind of quit. The family has been reunited. They're back in. Uh, they're back together. Things are okay. And and so I would like for us to just step back a little bit this morning and and think about the major characters of the story, the major movements in the story, and then ask the question: What is God really doing here? Why is this here? It's a great story. It's a good moral teaching. We learn about uh, purity. We learn about uh, forgiveness. We learn about repentance. But it's a small story. What is the bigger story of what God is doing? And why do we know this story today? I'm going to read to you, and you listen very carefully to the words of a writer some thousands of years later when he writes about this portion of the story. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked a future blessing on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob went dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. As a writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, and the writer of Hebrews 11 had a lot of possibilities to choose from in the life of Joseph. He chose to say that the greatest act of Joseph was at the end of his own life to say, take my bones back to the promised land. And in that, it engages the greater story of what God is doing throughout the Testaments. There are uh, several major characters that we've looked at when, uh, when this passage, I'm, I'm going to read, let's read uh, chapter 47 of Genesis. I'm going to read uh, beginning at verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my father in the days of their sojourning. And and Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. Then Joseph settled his father's father and his brothers and gave them possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. And then let's skip over to verse 27 and pick the story up there. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. 
And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. That uh, last phrase there, Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed, it means Israel went to his bed and laid down. He is near the end of his life. There are three major players in the story that we've, we've met. Uh, at this point, Jacob is 130 years old when he meets Pharaoh. Can you imagine? Imagine with me. Here's this great patriarch. They wore their beards because they make reference to beards. Egyptians did not wear beards. They were clean-shaven. Any pictures and photos of the pharaohs in the, um, in the pyramids and so on, they all have their beards shaved. Remember, when J- Joseph was taken out of prison, he shaved. And so you have this clean-shaven king of the universe. This man, Pharaoh, commands, char- has charge of most of the known world. And you have this old man coming into him with a big, long beard. And this old man's all bent over. And Pharaoh says, now, how old are you? And Jacob says, I'm 130 years old. And there's this interchange. And this old man, who suddenly Pharaoh realizes something about this old man. This old man has something to give to me. And Jacob blesses Pharaoh. What a picture of that. And, uh, and so, so Jacob is 130 years old. Joseph is about 47 to 50 years old at this time, uh, when his father died. So he's in his early 30s when they first meet Pharaoh, his brothers, and so on. Uh, And the brothers, you know, these 11 guys are still in the story. But they resume, they they take less of a prominent piece in this last, they they have a piece there. There's also uh, blessings in this last portion. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Jacob blesses Joseph. Joseph brings his two boys in. These two boys born to an Egyptian princess. They're part Egyptian, part Israel's family. And, and uh, Jacob says, I'm going to give you a double portion of a blessing. I'm going to give each of your sons get a piece of the blessing. And so there's this strange maneuver where he brings them in and Jacob sets them down by, uh, Joseph sets them down by age and Jacob crosses his arms and puts his arms on the other one's head. It's all these strange pieces to the story. And he blesses his sons. And, and then when he's done blessing them, uh, by the way, this is his blessing. The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. I, that's fascinating, powerful. It's found in 48, uh, where he, he, these two little Egyptian boys raised in an Egyptian palace are there, and, the, and uh, Jacob says, the God who has been my shepherd all of my days. And, and he blesses the sons. And then at the end uh, of his life, as he's ready to die, Jacob calls his 11 sons in, or his 12 sons in. And, and he, uh, he blesses his sons. Now, it's not really a blessing for all of them. Some of them don't get much of a blessing. Some of them are told, you live by blood, you're going to die by blood. And it's going to be hard. You have been a fool. You are a weak person. But that doesn't change their space in the family. They're still sons. And they're, uh, 
their heritage will go forth out of them and, and they will become a, a great and mighty space. There's also weeping, uh, three different occasions of weeping in this portion. J, uh, Joseph, when his father died in chapter 50, Joseph wept for his fathers. And then all of Egypt wept for Jacob. That might have been a little forced, you know. Hey, we're going to have uh, forced weeping for the next 30 days, 40 days. Uh, go ahead and weep, and especially if somebody's watching. I don't know how all that worked, but there's another place where there's weeping, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute here. There's also some promises. And as I was looking at from 47 to 50, I was thinking about what is the, what is the heart of this passage? What is it teaching us? And we, we return to these three principal people that have been a part of this story. There's Jacob, and then there's Judah. We cannot forget Judah. Judah is a prominent player in all of this, as we've looked at uh, particularly last Sunday and a couple Sundays before that. Judah is one of these people who, who changes his life, and in that life change, something big happens. And then, of course, there is Joseph. And I've, I've broken it down and say that Jacob discovered in this last portion, he talks about this a lot, that God is faithful. And the lesson that we can learn from Jacob is that God is faithful. The lesson that we can learn from Judah is that God is forgiving. All of us have been Judas. We've pursued the wrong spaces. We've pursued the wrong loves. And then, from Joseph, we learn that in spite of all the things that happens, God is good. And the three players talk about this. So God is faithful. This is seen in the life of Joseph. God fulfilled his promise to, jo- to, I'm sorry, to Jacob. They're all three J's and sometimes you get them confused. Jacob, Judah, and Joseph. That'd be quite the way to name your family, by the way. I'm giving some suggestions. Uh, young church, babies, uh, three boys, Jacob, Judah, and Joseph. And you could forever talk about this story. But in the life of Jacob, we see that guy's failed. Think about the life of Jacob. He's 147 years old when he dies. And he, there's these great promises that God, the God of heaven, the God that his family's chosen to embrace imperfectly, but have chosen to embrace. And in fact, when those little boys, his grandsons, Joseph's boys come, he said, the God of heavens, the God of the universe, the God who is my shepherd. He's a shepherd himself, and he knows what that means, and he's seen God's leading in that way. And, but but his, his grandfather, Abraham, had been given this promise. That's why I read from Hebrews 11. And there's something about that story in Hebrews 11, those few short verses, where it takes Abraham, and Abraham has one son. And God gives Abraham this promise, and he says, from you all the world is going to be blessed. And Abraham has one son after a long time, and after several false starts. Abraham has one son. And his, his son is doted on. And when his son is a, a young man, not a boy, but a young man, God comes along and says, uh, now I want you to go to sacrifice that son. What do you, I, I have to, I, I'm often forced to think about, how could we do that? But Je- Abraham, in his faithfulness to God, takes his son up. His son asks, Dad, where's the ram? He said, God will provide. And that, those terms, God will provide, God is faithful, keep coming up over and over and over again in this story. And we know that God did provide the ram. 
but then, uh, then uh, Jake, uh, Isaac, his, his son, has two boys. And uh, those two boys are uh, good, they're works of art, let's just put it like that. That one steals the birthright from the other. I mean, this is just a mess. One steals the birthright from the other. And uh, this one of his favorite verses that people like to, to have at weddings, God set a marker between me and thee, that when we're apart from each other. You've seen that verse? That is actually is the verse that uh, Esau quotes to Jacob when they are Laban quotes to Jacob when they set up markers and, J- and Laban is saying, if you come back across that line, God set a marker, I'm going to cut your head off. I mean, this is not, these are real people with real problems and real issues. And it's through them that God chooses to work. And then this guy has 12 boys and they're a mess. We've talked about the mess of these boys. But in the middle of all of that, at the end of his life, Jacob is before the king of the, the physical king of the universe, Pharaoh, and he says, God has been faithful. And when those little boys come, he sees the fulfillment of that promise, and he goes out. And uh, so, so we see the faithfulness of God in moving forward his narrative, his story, in, in the life of Jacob. And, but we can't forget Judah, that God is forgiving. He leads the way into the land for, for Jacob's family. You know, when, when they come into the land... Judah is the one who rides at the head of the family. But before Judah can ride at the head of the family, before Judah can lead his family, something else has to happen. And Judah has to go through this uh, experience with Tamar, or Judah went through this experience with Tamar. And at the end of his, the time when he was going to kill Tamar, God spoke to Judah's heart in such a way that Judah repented. And from there on out, chapter 38 on, Judah is a different person. And he experiences the forgiveness of God. And all of us deserve to die for what we did. For our sins. And unless we get to the same place Judah did, where we say, she is more righteous than I am. We can never be a leader in the kingdom of God or be a part of the kingdom of God. So Judah is a, the, the fact that God is forgiving and uh, when the blessings are passed out, when Jacob is at the end of his life, he calls his twelve sons and, and uh, his yeah his twelve sons, and then Ephraim and Manasseh, the, the two boys of Joseph, and he, 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 he the, the boys get their just due. Reuben, he says, "You are my firstborn. You're the mighty one, the first fruit of my strength, but you are unstable as water." You shall not have any preeminence. What do you think Reuben felt right there at that moment? I think he saw himself. He said, because of you, because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it, you went up to my couch. And in that moment, Reuben understood that he had never repented of that act. He said, Simon and Levi, you guys are the sons of blood. And he said, you went and def- yes, your sister was defiled and you could have taken justice for that, but instead you killed an entire village. And then he comes to Judah. Now Judah has done all these bad things. But Judah has repented. His brothers have not. He said, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of the enemies. Your father's son shall bow down 
before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Remember that. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. And so in, in, in the life of Judah, we see, we see a man who is willing to say, I was wrong. And that what I did was wrong. And it's only when we are willing to say those kinds of statements, make those kinds of statements, that God can really work in us. Reuben and Simeon and Levi and the rest of the brothers were never able to see that. So God is forgiving. And in the life of Jacob, we see, or the life of Joseph. So the life of Jacob, we see that God is faithful. The life of Judah, we see that God is forgiving. And in the life of Joseph, we see that God takes the hard things of life. He takes the pain of life and he brings redemption from it. That God is good and God is involved. And we see this. Remember, I said that there is another time when someone wept. So Jacob has died. And, and the sons, true to his father's wishes, take their father's body, and they go back. They have a whole group of Egyptians going with them, army men, and so on. And they bury their father in the tomb beside Rachel in the, in the place where God has promised to Abraham that they will inherit it. And somewhere on the way back, or shortly after they came back, the brothers, 11 men now, old men, in their 60s and 70s, some of them, send word to their younger brother. They say, uh, uh, Joseph, uh, your dad gave this command before he died. Now, no one knows for sure if Jacob ever gave a command. And they, they, in their backhanded way, they say, this is what they say in verse, uh, chapter 50, verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servant of the God of your fathers. Oh, so backhanded. These men still don't have it, do they? They're, they're saying, uh, What are we going to do? Dad's gone. Uh, and you know what's ringing in their pockets? Those two shekels that they got for their brothers, every time they reach into their pockets, they feel the guilt of what they had done for their brothers because they're unrepentant and unwilling to face up to it. And at this moment, they reach out to their brother and say, now, now, uh, and they appeal to his goodness. And they say, now, now you know, Dad said. And it, the, the scriptures are so profound, and it says this, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He cried. He wasn't crying for the pain of what they had done to them. He was crying because he was looking at a group of men who were so distressed by their own guilt. He said, brothers, brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God used for good. I've often thought about this and thought about what had to work in Joseph. Now, he had to be forgiving. And, I, you know, forgiveness is a process. Forgiveness is not a one-time thing where we, uh, at one point, forgive. Forgiveness is a choice that you and I make. And I, I, there is a large difference between pardon and forgiveness. 
I, and I think in a, in a modern world, we, we have often heard these people, they talk about forgiveness in the sense of what it gives you, the person forgiving. If forgiveness is about relieving yourself of the bitterness or anything like that, that's not true forgiveness. Sure, forgiveness does something inside of us, but what forgiveness does is reaches out like Joseph's and gives back to his brothers. Forgiveness also, and I, I maybe sometime I will preach more about forgiveness, but forgiveness is not dependent upon the other person's confession. Joseph forgave his brothers despite their performance. Uh, forgiveness also doesn't require an agreed-upon version of the past. If Joseph would have sat down with his brothers and said, let's agree what happened back there at Dotham, they would have probably said, no, no, it wasn't like that. Joseph actually loved enough that he forgave, just like Jesus did. Uh, forgiveness also, though, and I, I want to be very clear about this, uh, forgiveness does not necessarily mean that, that we retrust the person who has hurt us. Retrust? I just invented a word, didn't I? It, 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 it means that, uh, you know, Joseph didn't say, hey, you know, I've forgiven you. Let's all go back to Dothan and graze our sheep together and kind of return to our happy life. You know what? Uh, they could never forget what they had done to Joseph, and Joseph could never forget what they had done to you. Have you ever tried to forget something? Forgive and forget. That does not work. No one of us has perfect forgetfulness. Only God has that. We live with the pain of what has been done to us. And, and so, forgiveness, when we reach out in forgiveness like Joseph, he's saying, look, I can't forget what you did, you did to me. I cannot forget that. But what I can do is look at the bigger story and say, God meant this for something much bigger than you and I could imagine. Doesn't excuse his brothers, doesn't give them the freedom to to keep doing what they do, but we have to, he was willing to admit to the pain that his brothers had done, brought it to God, the shepherd of the universe, and there he found the grace to say, God is bigger than you. In essence, what Joseph is saying to his brothers there is God is bigger than you are. And it takes us, this broadens the story and takes us into the story of what God wants to do in the universe. And join with me as, I, as you think about the story and the narrative of what God is doing in the universe. So God in his omnipotence springs the stars out into the universe. Anyone see the moon last night? He hung that moon in the sky. And by the way, Genesis 1-3 to is not a science text. It is a text of the almighty wonder of God springing the world and life into existence. And in the middle of that, he takes dust and he crafts a man. And he breathes into the man something nothing else in the universe has, a living soul. And then he does this strange act where he brings the animals and the man becomes hungry for his own, uh, he, he becomes desiring of his own helpmeet. And I've, I've often tried to figure this out, but God comes down and he performs the first operation and he cuts into the side of Adam. Not the head, not the foot, but into the side of Adam. And from there he makes Eve. I've often wondered why that is there. Why did God have to do that? He could have just created Eve or he could have created her. But I think there's a reason that we'll see in a bit. And so God puts them in a garden. He blesses them. They commune with God. And in one act of sinfulness, in one act of selfishness, they embrace a lie. And they sin their way into sinfulness. 
And God comes down and he says, what have you done? And after a bit, they admit. And God says, okay, I'm going to bring redemption. I'm going to offer redemption to you for you to return. From your womb will come the one who redeems the world. And the very next chapter, chapter 4 of Genesis, Eve has a baby. What is his name? What's Eve's firstborn? Adam and Eve's. Come on. Cain. And you know what the word Cain means in their original language? The gotten one. The redeemer. Eve thinks it's the redeemer. What does Cain prove right away? He's not the redeemer. And you go on through the story, and so the, the world becomes bigger and bigger and more people, and, and you have these major figures. And, and uh, the next person that could be the... Re- uh, imagine you've never read this. The next person that could be the, uh, the savior of the universe is Noah. Well, Noah, and, and you know the story maybe too well sometimes, but Noah gets the ark and, and there's only eight people left at the end of the flood and they get out of the ark. And what's the first thing Noah does when he gets out of the ark? What's a, it's first recorded. He gets drunk. He's not the redeemer. And so you go on through the story and the next person is Abraham. Maybe this is the redeemer. Well, Abraham is married to a very beautiful woman. And uh, they go down to Egypt. They can't have a baby. This is a bit problematic but uh, the woman comes up with an idea, and they try that. That didn't work very well. And uh, they go down to Egypt, and, and twice this happens. And, and she's an old lady by now. And it, he says, uh, you know what, uh, Sarah? Uh, you are so beautiful. You are, you, you are the most beautiful woman alive. You can imagine him saying that. It's leading up to something. I'd rather not lose my head. I'd rather not lose my head. So when we go into that land, the men are going to look at you and they're going to say, whoa. When when they do that, say, yeah, this is my brother. Come on. I mean, who does that? Not the redeemer of the universe. But it's through that imperfectness that God comes down and he says, I'm going to make your family the greatest family on earth. And then they have that one son and he's taken up on the Mount Moriah and he's almost offered there, but he's saved from that. And then he have two sons and this family grows. In the middle of that growing family comes all this mess. And God, and, and you're the first, you're reading through this story for the first time. What is God doing here? God is doing something much bigger than Joseph. God is doing something much bigger than Judah. He's doing something to bring redemption to the world. But he does it through these imperfect humans because that's who he chooses to work with. In his love, he says, these are my people. And you have the story of Judah in the middle of this wonderful, morally upright story of Joseph where he is uh, unrighteously sold into the land and uh, then stands up against Potiphar's wife, you have the story of Judah. And at the very end of Judah, she has two sons, and one beats the other out, but then, you know, there's all that confusion with the red banner, and all these things. And at the end of Genesis, you have this small group of people, this very small group of people, 120, 140 people maybe, and, uh, and they're talking about taking their bones 
back into the promised land, the place where they're going. And you get the feeling that there's going to be something so much bigger than this. And there is, brothers and sisters, there is. There is something much bigger than this. And it is through this broken man, Judah, that someday a young woman will conceive a child under strange circumstances and he will become the lion of the tribe of Judah. It is through this family, through this story, and it's much bigger. It suddenly escalates that it's much bigger than Abraham. It's much bigger than Isaac. It's much bigger than Joseph. This is about God. And the lion of the tribe of Judah comes to earth as a little baby. He too has 11 he has 12 brothers. And one dies and 11, one is no more. And 11 forsake him. And he too knows what it is to be unjustly accused for what he's done. And then he is hung on a Roman cross. And in that moment of darkness, when the world becomes dark and the veil of the temple splits open, The power of God comes down. And think about this. The Roman soldier walks up to him and they're supposed to break his legs so he can't get his pull up to get his breath anymore. But they think he's dead. So the Roman soldier, in an act of stupidity, sticks his spear into the side of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Wait, the side? The side? From it comes water and blood. From it comes his bride. Just like God created Adam and then went to his side. I have often thought, why did God take a rib out of Adam's side? His side. It is because it's looking forward to when the true Adam, the second Adam, would come to earth. And from his side would come the power to create Eve. The bride. Us. The story is so much bigger than Joseph. Or Judah. Or Israel. It is about bringing God himself to the universe. And three days later, the ultimate enemy of mankind, we all fight against it with our breath. Death is defeated when Jesus rises from the dead. And the second Adam allows us to return to, to Eden in ways that are much bigger than the original Eden. In Daniel 7, there is this powerful passage. We often think about the fact that Jesus came to earth and someday he's coming back to restore his kingdom. I'm telling you what, Jesus' kingdom is going on earth. It began in Genesis 3 and it is going to, it, is, it will never end. It will end here on earth sometime and we don't even know how that will look. But in, in Daniel 7, there's this reference to the kingdom, all the nations of all the world of all times being given to the Son. And Jesus will reign. Jesus reigns on earth. And all these small stories, stories like Joseph, they're magnificent and wonderful, but they're all pointing us to something much bigger. And in that process, we see that God is faithful, that God is forgiving, and that in the brokenness of our lives and world and relationships and messes that we live in, that God is good.
find it so ironic that Joseph's last act is to commend his family. Here he is, the Lord, the second in command of the most powerful nation on earth. And he could have a pyramid built for his bones if he wanted to. The pharaohs did that. Instead, he says, take my bones back because the story of what God is doing is much greater than the story of, what, of Egypt. Let's stand together. I am forced, when I think about the story like this, to ask myself, where do I fit in the story? Who am I? Am I struggling with God's faithfulness? Am I struggling with forgiveness? Am I struggling to understand that God has a bigger purpose and that God is good? And I catch myself at all three of those spaces all the time. But when I can kind of step back from the little pieces and look at the big piece, look at what God is doing, and think about the fact that I'm part of that Eve, that bride, By the way, Paul, in Ephesians 5, when he talks about marriage, it's often used at our weddings, he says, when he talks about Christ in the church, he said, we are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Where did we hear that before? Genesis 2. We're a part of his story. We have choices in that. It's only in choice that we can love and be loved. Lord Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters and myself. I pray that your power would come down and in in the narrative that you're building, in the fact that you are the ancient of days and you're building a kingdom that is much bigger than Egypt. Egypt, it is much bigger than the United States, it is much bigger than any earthly power. It is the kingdom of heaven. And that that you're building a marriage. The second Adam and his bride. I pray that as we engage our own hearts into that story. That we would think about the events that we faced this last week. And the events coming up. And think about your faithfulness. Your forgiveness. And your goodness. And whether we're Jacob. Judah. Or Joseph. Or any combination of three. That you would speak to our hearts. And bring freedom and deliverance for us to proclaim the story. In Jesus name. Amen. You are dismissed.